the headlines tonight. Uh, Santo Tomas, US. Forces unlock the Japanese camp of doom. Provisional IRA bombs motor coach sends British forces to the moon. And Philippine-American war, American soldier shoots first, asks questions later. Plus, coming up, news from the Vatican as Pope Francis appoints a squirrel as cardinal. Those are the headlines. The news is now in your hands. Mna News Bang. Cutting through the fog of lies with the sharpness of a well-crafted sentence. 1945. In a daring daylight raid, the Yanks have liberated the San Tomato internment camp in Manila. The camp, little more than a shack with barbed wire around it, had been home to over 3,000 POWs and several hundred ducks. Conditions were described as appalling by one eyewitness. It was like Butlin's, and in many ways worse. The internees, mostly American servicemen who'd got lost on their way to Brighton, had endured years of hardship at the hands of their Japanese captors. One survivor, we'll call him Bob, because that was his name, recalled how they'd often wake up to find their rations stolen by marauding monkeys. They took everything, cigarettes, chocolate, even our self-respect, he sobbed through tears of rage and indigestion. But all that changed today when Uncle Sam came calling with his trusty M16 machine gun and told them all to bugger off back home. Amidst scenes reminiscent of VE Day crossed with a ticker tape parade organised by a blind man on acid, bedlam ensued. The liberation is seen as a major blow for common sense and decency across Asia Minor. 1974. Tragedy struck the M62 motorway today as a coachload of British Armed Forces personnel and their families were caught up in an IRA bombing. The blast, which occurred at Junction 17, took place just after the services where witnesses say most had stopped for a fry-up or to use the facilities. It was carnage, said eyewitness Nigel Blunt from his hospital bed. I'd just ordered a bacon butty when I heard this almighty bang. Mr. Blunt then mimed an explosion with his hands before being sedated by medical staff. The Provisional Irish Republican Army, or Perana as they're known in Belfast, have claimed responsibility for the attack, seeking to end British rule in Northern Ireland and create an independent all-Irish republic called Oil Reeland. The group believes that violence is the only way forward much like drivers during rush hour on this very stretch of motorway. In response, Prime Minister Harold Wilson has vowed to hunt down those responsible, saying, We will not be intimidated by these cowardly actions. Now, if you'll excuse me, my kipper needs attending to. 1899. Well, the turn of the century was a time of great unrest in the Philippines. The locals, fed up with Spanish rule, had just kicked them out and were about to have a well-earned siesta when along came the Yanks. In 18,999, an American soldier named trigger-happy Harry Truman accidentally fired his musket at a Filipino sentry during morning calisthenics. The ensuing war lasted three years or until 1902, longer than any other war that didn't involve Germany or Britain fighting over some far-flung colony. The Battle of Manila was the first and bloodiest engagement, American forces emerging victorious after they discovered most of the Filipino army had gone home for lunch. Eyewitnesses described it as utter carnage, while others simply said carnage. 
the conflict raged on for three years until both sides realised they were actually fighting over an envelope stuffed with used postage stamps addressed to someone called Philippines Esquire. News Bang, the only news programme that can tell the difference between a lie and a lie. Shakanaka Giles, with a weather report that will have you pining for a warm blanket and a hot toddy, here's what to expect tomorrow. Tomorrow's weather, then. In the southeast, the sun will rise like a blushing bride at 7.15am, only to be hidden behind a thick layer of clouds by 10am. The morning will be crisp and chilly, as if Mother Nature herself is handing you a glass of champagne. The Midlands will experience a similar fate, with the temperature hovering around 5 degrees Celsius. It's the kind of cold that bites at your nose and makes you wish you had stayed in bed. Now, let's turn our attention to the northwest, where things are looking up. The sun will shine brightly from 11 a.m. until 3 p.m., as if it's saying cheers to the upcoming Super Bowl. In Scotland and Northern Ireland, it'll be a mixed bag. Expect rain showers in the morning and early afternoon, but don't worry, it won't last long enough to ruin your day. By evening, the clouds will clear away, making room for a beautiful sunset. And that's all the weather for tomorrow. Stay warm and enjoy your day. Nineteen forty-five. In a momentous event marking the end of World War II, the U.S. forces liberated the Santo Tomas internment camp in Manila, rescuing over three thousand internees, primarily American citizens. The war's toll was devastating, claiming eighty-five million lives globally. As we stand at the precipice of history, let us remember those who suffered and celebrate the heroes who brought peace and freedom to those incarcerated in this largest Japanese internment camp in the Philippines. Now for an in-depth look at this remarkable tale of liberation and resilience, we turn to our reporter Brian Bastable. Martin, as I stand here, the ground shakes. Explosions rip through the air like sharpened bayonets to a terrified soldier's backside. The sky is thick with black smoke and ash from the fires of war that burn ferociously in every direction. As I survey this human cesspit, I see emaciated corpses crawling around like ants on a mountain of feces. In this godforsaken place, over 3,000 souls are held captive by an enemy that knows no mercy or compassion. Their only crime, being American citizens on foreign soil when war broke out, the atmosphere here is one of despair and hopelessness as men, women and children huddle together for comfort amidst their squalid surroundings. Food is scarce, medicine non-existent, disease rampant among these poor wretches who face death daily at the hands of their brutal captors or from starvation within these crumbling walls. But today, hope arrives in the form of liberators clad in olive drab uniforms and steel helmets. 
brave soldiers from Uncle Sam's army marching towards us with fixed bayonets and grim determination etched upon their faces. With each step they take closer to our prison camp, we can feel freedom drawing nearer until, finally, the moment comes. A cacophony of cheers erupts as our saviors burst through the gates charging into battle against those who would keep us imprisoned any longer. It isn't long before surrender flags wave high above defeated foes, while jubilant internees embrace their rescuers amid tears of joyous relief. This is it. Liberation Day has dawned upon Santo Tomas internment camp, marking an end to suffering and beginning anew for those who survived this horrific ordeal thanks to the heroism displayed by these gallant men fighting not just for us, but also for freedom itself. Brian Bastable reporting live from Manila during World War II. 1974. The year is 1974, a time when the Provisional Irish Republican Army carried out a heinous act of terrorism. A motorcoach was bombed, leaving 12 innocent souls to perish in its wake. The group's objective was to terminate British rule in Northern Ireland and establish an independent republic that spanned the entire island. The atrocity unfolded on the M62 motorway in the north of England, specifically targeting off-duty British Armed Forces personnel and their families. The British Armed Forces, sworn to protect the United Kingdom and its interests, were left reeling from this senseless attack. And now, for a more in-depth look at this tragic event, we turn to our correspondent Ken Shit. Good evening, degenerates. We're flashing back to the year 1974 a time when flares were all the rage, bell-bottoms were the business, and the provisional Irish Republican Army was making a bloody statement. These blasted Republicans were hell-bent on ending British rule in Northern Ireland and creating an independent republic that would span the entirety of the Emerald Isle. They were like a pack of rabid wolves, hungry for blood and chaos. On this fateful day, they decided to target a motor coach filled with off-duty British Armed Forces personnel and their loved ones. The M62 motorway in Northern England became a bloody battleground as the Republicans detonated a bomb that claimed the lives of 12 innocent souls. Twelve lives snuffed out in an instant, all because of the twisted desires of a group that sought to bring about change through violence and terror. The British armed forces, responsible for defending the United Kingdom and its interests, were left reeling from the senseless carnage. This is Ken Shit, your resident field reporter, reminding you that no matter how far we've come, there are still those out there who seek to bring us back to the dark days of the past. Let us never forget the sacrifices made by those who gave their lives in the name of freedom and peace. May their souls rest in power. Ken Shit, Newsbang. 1969. In a stunning turn of events, Yasser Arafat, the Palestinian political leader and founder of the Fatah Party, has been revealed to be a proponent of Palestinian statehood. Arafat, who served as chairman of the Palestine Liberation Organization, PLO, and president of the Palestinian National Authority, PNA, was instrumental in advocating for Palestinian statehood. Initially seeking the elimination of Israel, Arafat later recognized Israeli sovereignty with the Oslo the Fiend Accord, and shifted focus to Arab statehood in the occupied Palestinian territories. For more on this developing story, we turn to our correspondent Hardiman Pesto. 
I'm here in Cairo with the leader of the Palestine Liberation Organization, Yasser Arafat. Mr. Arafat, there are rumors of a major announcement coming soon regarding the PLO's stance towards Israel. Can you give us any details? Yes, we have decided on a bold new path towards peace. For too long, violence and hatred have plagued the region. It is time for compromise. Compromise? That seems unlikely for the PLO. Your charter calls for the elimination of Israel. Our views have evolved. We recognize that Israel is here to stay. We seek a two-state solution, a Palestinian state alongside Israel. Well, that would truly be groundbreaking if implemented. But many see your rhetoric as mere posturing to gain international support. On the contrary, we are fully committed to reconciliation and coexistence. In fact, I will soon be traveling to Israel to meet with leaders there. You? In Israel? That seems ambitious. Your terrorist past makes you a controversial figure, to say the least. The past is the past. I aim to build trust and forge personal relationships with my counterparts. Together, we will lay the framework for a lasting peace. Assuming you actually get led into the country in the first place. Oh, I'm sure it will be fine. Perhaps a fruit basket for Prime Minister, Goldemir as a goodwill gesture, dates, hummus, baklava, uh, Mr. Arafat, given that Ms. Mayer has famously vowed to never meet with you, perhaps reconsider the baklava. Back to you, Martin. Pesto, you blithering buffoon. He hasn't even made the announcement yet. This is monumental. The PLO recognizing Israel? Get back in there and get the details before he changes his mind. Of course, back in a jiffy. Mr. Arafat about that two-state solution. 1974. In a tale as twisted as a pretzel dipped in custard, 1974 saw the abduction of Patty Hearst, the American heiress to a newspaper empire. The kidnappers? None other than the Symbionese Liberation Army, who, after a spot of Stockholm Syndrome, convinced Patty to join their ranks. Nineteen months later, she was found and arrested, only to face whispers about her family's resources helping her dodge prison time. The SLA, America's first taste of homegrown leftist terrorism. But don't take my word for it. Let's hear from our CBN correspondent, Melody Wintergreen. The Golden State shimmers with a tale more twisted than Lombard Street. Patty Hearst, the newspaper heiress with a lineage as long as the California coastline, finds herself snatched from her collegiate castle by a band of self-styled revolutionaries, the Symbionese Liberation Army. Their manifesto, a muddled melange of Marxist mutterings. The SLA, a ragtag regiment of radicalism, has turned this patrician princess into their proletarian poster child. 19 months in the making and Patty swaps her tiara for a Tommy gun, her ball gowns for bandoliers. She's Tanya now, a moniker marinated in rebellion and riflery. The FBI is flummoxed, the Hearsts are harrowed. And then, like a plot twist penned by Poe himself, Tanya is trussed up by the law. Will her blue blood buy her freedom, or will justice be blind to banknotes? The public ponders if Patty's plight is one of coercion or choice. Stockholm Syndrome whispers through the corridors of courtrooms and coffee shops alike, a psychological phenomenon as elusive as the fog on San Francisco Bay. Is it real or merely a ghost story for grown-ups? As experts expound on Stockholm Syndrome, we're left to ponder, is Patty Hearst prisoner or partisan? 
In this saga of survival and subversion, only one thing is certain. America can't look away. Melody Wintergreen reporting for Newsbang. Newsbang. The last word on the news because it's the only word that matters. And now Penelope Winchime reports on the earthquake that struck northern Afghanistan in 1998. She's our environment correspondent who brings us news from the earth itself. In the year of our earth, 1998, Mother Gaia, in a fit of rage or perhaps a desperate cry for attention, did shake the very foundations of northern Afghanistan. The land quivered and quaked with a ferocity of 5.9 on the momentous wiggle scale, sending homes, 15,000 of them tumbling like a child's blocks in the hands of an overzealous toddler. Over 2,000 souls were swept up in this earthen sneeze near the border where Afghanistan winks at Tajikistan. For seven days and seven nights, aftershocks did jitterbug beneath the feet of man and beast alike, while landslides gallivanted across the terrain. Rocks did tumble with wild abandon, and mudflows sashayed down slopes as if late to a grand ball, hosted by none other than terra firma herself. The National Geophysical Data Centre proclaimed this tectonic tantrum extreme, a term usually reserved for sports or weather, but here applied to the convulsions of our planet's crust. And so we remember this day not with mirth, but with a solemn nod to Earth's unpredictable cha-cha-cha. I'm Penelope Winchime, and may your foundations always be stable. On this historical odyssey through transportation mishaps, we're accompanied by Polly Beep. Buckle up for tales of stranded ships, errant engines, and an interstellar detour on the M25. Take it away, Polly. Buckle up, folks. We're diving into the past for tonight's traffic and travel segment. First stop, 1999. The Panamanian-flagged freighter New Carissa has taken a leisurely detour and grounded itself near Coos Bay, Oregon. A storm's sent the ship's bow section to a watery grave, but the stern's having a beach party. It's the new hotspot for seagulls and oil-soaked tourists. Meanwhile, in 2008, London's low emission zone is in full swing. Non-compliant commercial vehicles are being turned away and the city's air is cleaner than a Scandinavian's conscience. It's like the mayor's gone on a health kick and banned all diesel-powered vehicles. Now, let's hop over to 2015 in Taipei, Trans-Asia Airways. Flight 235 just had a flame out, literally. The crew accidentally shut down the wrong engine, causing the plane to crash shortly after takeoff. A reminder to always double check before pulling the plug. And for a quick update, in 1775, the HMS Victory has run aground in Portsmouth Harbour. The crew's blaming the lack of smartphones with GPS. A reminder to always pack a map when sailing the high seas. Lastly, in 2051, Elon Musk's SpaceX Starship has crash-landed on the M25. They're calling it a minor inconvenience. Drivers are advised to use the A30 instead, or take the scenic route via Mars. Until next time, keep your engines purring and your time machines in check. This is Polly Beep. 
wishing you safe travels. Newsbang, avoiding the cliché by sticking to the facts. Sandy O'Shaughnessy, your royal raconteur, here to regale you with tales of yore and lore. Nice ah, and a very good evening to you all. This is Sandy O'Shaughnessy, your royal raconteur, stepping in to guide you through the labyrinth of history. As the sun dips below the horizon and the stars begin to twinkle, let's embark on a journey to a time when emperors ruled and dynasties were forged. Ah. <laughs> now, imagine, if you will, the year 960. Emperor Taizu, a man with a name that sounds like a sneeze, was busy founding the Song Dynasty of China. A dynasty that would last for over three centuries, mind you. It's a bit like my Aunt Mabel's fruitcake, which seems to have been around since the dawn of time. Ah. <laughs> Emperor Taizu, a man of vision and ambition, ruled from 960 to 976, a time of prosperity, innovation, and of course, the occasional palace intrigue. I like to imagine him as a kind of J.R. Ewing of the East, with a touch of Dallas drama in the Forbidden City. Ah. <laughs> the Song Dynasty, a golden age of Chinese culture, was a time of great advancements in art, literature, and technology. It was also a time of conflict, as the Song Dynasty clashed with other dynasties in northern China, a bit like the rivalry between the Loaf County Football Club and the Clister United, if you will. Ah. <laughs> but, as with all good things, the Song Dynasty eventually came to an end. In 1279, the Mongol-led Yuan Dynasty conquered the Song, bringing about a new era in Chinese history. It's a reminder that, in the grand tapestry of time, even the mightiest of empires must eventually yield to the hands of fate. Ah. <laughs> Speaking of fate, I received a delightful letter from Seamus in Kilkenny. He writes, Dear Sandy, I've been having dreams about a giant panda who keeps telling me to invest in turnips. Should I listen? Well, Seamus, if it were me, I'd say follow your heart, or, at the very least, consult a financial advisor before making any rash decisions based on the advice of a dream panda. Ah. <laughs> you know, as we delve into the stories of emperors and dynasties, it's easy to forget that history is made up of countless individual tales, each one as unique and fascinating as the next. So, keep your letters coming, and let's continue to weave our own tapestry of stories here on the airwaves. Ah. <laughs> and with that, it's time for me to bid you a fond farewell. But remember, it, it's not goodbye. It's just, see you later, alligator. In a while, crocodile, from the heart of the Emerald Isle, this is Sandy O'Shaughnessy signing off. Keep those letters coming, and until we meet again, may the wind be at your back and the sun upon your face. All over the News Bang, unleashing the dogs of truth on the sausage factory of misinformation. 1859. In a revelation that has left theologians and historians alike in a state of near ecstasy, the year 1859 bore witness to the discovery of the Codex Sinaiticus. This magnificent, centuries-old Greek Bible manuscript was unearthed in none other than St. Catherine's Monastery, nestled at the foot of Mount Sinai.
This ancient treasure houses both the Old and New Testaments, penned in uncile letters upon parchment. As one of the four great uncile codices, it has been dated to the mid-fourth century, placing it among the oldest and most complete manuscripts of its kind. And to shed more light on this remarkable find is our very own pastor, Kevin Monstrance. Good evening, ladies and gents. Your humble Pastor Kevin here on this crisp February Eve. Before we begin, a quick thought on the weather. Reminds me of the biting winds whipping across the Sinai Desert, which coincidentally segues quite nicely into tonight's tale. <laughs> the year was 1859, and the setting was St. Catherine's Monastery in Egypt, home to some of the crankiest monks this side of the Nile. There was Brother Bartholomew, who only responded to questions in angry grunts and dear doddering old brother Bedivere, who spent most days wandering the monastery in his undergarments searching for his teeth. <laughs> now, one of their order, brother Bingo Hawkeye McGillicuddy, was quite the treasure hunter. He had a nose like a bloodhound for lost artefacts, and on this particular day, brother Hawkeye struck gold, or rather, parchment. Deep in the monastery's ancient library, tucked away behind a rather mouldy stack of fourth-century self-help scrolls, he uncovered the Codex Sinaiticus, one of the oldest and most complete copies of the Bible known to exist. <laughs> when Brother Hawkeye presented his finding to the abbot, old Brother Bedivere got overexcited and mistook it for the breakfast menu. But the abbot recognised its significance immediately. Brothers, he declared, this is a momentous discovery. We must notify the academic community at once. And so, word spread far and wide of this remarkable 4th-century manuscript, attracting scholars from across Europe and beyond. Fame soon followed for Brother Hawkeye, who thoroughly enjoyed the attention. Book deals were signed, lecture tours undertaken, and even whispers of a Codex Sinaiticus movie script starring none other than Brother Hawkeye himself as the dashing monk who against all odds unearthed this biblical treasure. Alas, all that excitement eventually took its toll on poor brother Hawkeye. He started showing up late for matins, reeking of lamp oil and murmuring about getting an agent. The abbot decided an intervention was needed. He brought together all the monks and confronted Hawkeye during chapter. Brother, I fear celebrity has corrupted you. It is time to shed your ego and return to a humble monastic life. Brother Hawkeye sighed, knowing it was true. You're right, Abbot. I lost sight of what's important. And so Brother Hawkeye renounced the spotlight and settled back into quiet monastery life. As did all the monks, who I should mention never did find poor Brother Bedivere's teeth. They're probably still out there to this day lurking under a pile of ancient texts. Well, quite the lengthy tale, but I hope you found it diverting. And may it remind us all that fame is fleeting. Best keep ourselves grounded, as the good monks did. Stay humble, my friends. And just time for a quick look at tomorrow's headlines. The Times. Wilson vetoes Immigration Act, Congress overrules. There's a photo there of an immigration queue. The Independent, Bailin Tin. Bouligny refuses to follow Louisiana secessionists. 
There's a diagram there of a seceding horse. The male. Russian forces execute 60 civilians in Grozny massacre. There's a picture there of a gun pointing at the ground. And finally, the mirror. Blair thinks Chechnya is a type of pasta. No surprise there. That's all from us this evening. But before we go, here's a final thought. Why did the chicken cross the playground? To get to the other slide, good night from Newsbang. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.